Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. This is Erica Slater, and today I'm joined by Elizabeth McNulty, Liz Lenevy, and Amy Gunn. Hey, ladies. Hello. Hi. So this past week, we had an email come through from an opposing counsel, and it took everyone kind of aback when we read it, which is prompting our topic for this episode. So just to give you some context, the attorneys were talking about scheduling, and the email came back, I'm actually set for trial in the city that week, dead kid and a brain-damaged kid, Merry Christmas. And it put in stark contrast what we go through as far as the type of topics we deal with doing personal injury cases. And to imagine and think about the trauma of what is behind the facts of that case made us think about the idea of compartmentalism versus compassion fatigue and how in our profession, especially doing personal injury, we are sidelined to some really intense trauma of our clients and needing to convey that trauma and somehow translate it into a verdict for our clients, meaning we have to get in there with them, get in the muck, understand what they've been through, and translate that to a jury. And the whole concept of being able to be a strong and focused advocate And somehow insulating yourself from taking on the trauma of our clients because since we deal with so many cases at the same time on a daily basis, we obviously see a lot of trauma and are counseling our clients when they are experiencing this trauma, sometimes in the very acute time frame afterwards and having to be their voice during this time. So we wanted to have a discussion about how you mentally get through that, how you manage those feelings, how you deal with compassion fatigue, and hopefully not becoming the callous lawyer that we have often seen in our practice. And also, you know, this isn't unique just to our profession, of course. You can think of plenty of other professions, whether it be medical, first responder, anyone who works with people who experience trauma or, you know, long-term poverty or disability, things like that. Any profession that is a helping profession where you are attempting to advocate for or help someone in need obviously is susceptible to compassion fatigue. So Liz, we all saw this email, kind of all had the same response. Everyone was kind of cringing and thinking, yikes. So what do you do in your day-to-day to prevent compassion fatigue so you can still access and talk to your clients about their trauma or where they are? Oh, that's such a big question. And it's such a hard question. And it's something that we have to do every day. And I actually, when we started talking about this topic, and you brought up, this isn't just unique to our field, I actually thought about the first internship I ever had, which was at legal services. And specifically, I worked in the family law unit, helping survivors of domestic violence get orders of protection, divorce, custody, basically within that realm. And I remember being 21, 22 years old, maybe, standing 
in front of a copier preparing an exhibit for trial. And it was all the photos of what this man had done to our client, who was his girlfriend. And I remember commenting to the employee standing next to me, I can't do this every day. I cannot do this job. And then I came to this firm. And even though it's a different kind of trauma, we're not dealing with intimate partner violence like I was in that particular story. We obviously are dealing with people who have had some of the worst possible things happen to them. Medical malpractice that has left someone dead or incapacitated or forever injured. I think the cases that hit me the hardest are the ones where kids are involved. Absolutely. And the way that I have to get around that is really, and this is a common theme through a lot of our episodes of how we just survived this practice in general, is setting boundaries for myself, meaning that I try not to take clients' calls too often outside of work hours. And it's something that I say that I do and I need to do, but I'm not great at it. Even just this past Saturday, I got a voicemail and it's terrible now because what used to be I would get the voicemail on Monday morning when I came into work. Now I can see it on my phone, which I have on me all the time. And it was a mom freaking out about her kid's case. And I sat there and I thought, all right, do I call her back and break my Saturday rule or do I wait till Monday and let this eat at me all weekend and bother me all weekend thinking about that Monday phone call? But I've kept my boundary. And ultimately, I decided I'm just going to call her back now. And it took, you know, 45 minutes out of my Saturday talking to this woman. But it was something that I had decided in the moment. But I think overall, the way that we have to get around this is by setting those clear boundaries and also having the conversations with our clients of we're here to listen to you and we're here to advocate for you. But ultimately, I'm not your therapist. And it's interesting because we've had this talk before, Amy, about, you know, we say we're counselors and we are in a way, but I am not a licensed therapist. I cannot give you advice that is going to heal you or make you better. All I can do is work within the legal sphere. And I tell that to people. Also, the fact that we struggle to show empathy, but also making objective business decisions. And we've talked about this in declining cases. How do you decline? How do you tell someone who said something terrible happened to them and they are looking to you for answers? You seem to be their only hope. I'm sorry, I can't help you. I just had that experience yesterday and I felt really terrible about it. And I took a little bit of time and went to the kitchen and got myself a cup of tea and gave myself a minute to breathe before I went back and started the rest of my work for that day. But that's sort of just how I have to think about it is I have to make sure that I'm taking care of myself and taking care of my own mental health. And I think of the phrase, you can't pour from an empty cup. So what am I doing to make sure that I am mentally prepared and mentally strong enough to handle these cases? And also, if I'm in a situation where I don't feel like I am mentally capable of handling this, how do I know how to reach out for help? Who do I talk to? Who are the people in my life that I feel comfortable having this conversation with? And certainly it's my family, my husband, my colleagues here, anyone who does go to therapy and seeks out mental health counseling. I think that that's wonderful and I applaud those people and certainly that that's something I think mental health in general is something we should talk about more in this practice. Let me ask you about compartmentalizing and the call on Saturday. You obviously did an analysis of is it better for me and I'm not this is the right thing to do. Is it better for me to call her back now or wait for Monday? 
So that's an analysis you did. And you thought, and call her back now and get it over with. Or I can not stop what I'm doing, not change my plans, not go to a sad spot and do it on Monday. So what made you call her back? I knew that if I didn't call her back, and it was probably early morning on Saturday when she had initially called me, I knew that if I didn't call her back, it was going to be at the top of my mind for the rest of my Saturday into my Saturday evening. It was going to be at top of mind Sunday when I am trying to enjoy my last day of my weekend. And I don't know if anyone else gets the Sunday scaries. That would have heightened my Sunday scaries. So you weren't able to compartmentalize that? Not in that moment. Because I think my mistake was listening to the voicemail to begin with. uh, Yes. That was my mistake. Yes. That was how it started. Our voicemails, you can listen to it or there's like a text. It gets transcribed. Mm -hmm. So if I get a call on Saturday, I mean, listen, I'm not even opening that email. And you might say, well, that's not being a very good lawyer and you might be right. But that is, to me, the definition of compartmentalizing. There's a voicemail there. I can see the voicemail. I might even look to see who it's from. But I don't even let myself listen to it or read it. Because I believe that if it's really important on a weekend, it's going to be family and they're going to text me. That's the definition in my world of compartmentalizing. I had a depot this week that lasted like three hours in the afternoon. I didn't listen to those voicemails until the next day. Now, looking at our topic, compassion fatigue versus compartmentalizing. I like to believe that I don't have compassion fatigue. I guess that we didn't really define that per se, but to me, it means that I'm not able to empathize and I have never not been able to empathize when it's important. In the moment when I'm one-on-one with a client, I have it. I know I have it. I see it in their eyes when I'm talking to them. I see it in their body language when we're interacting. I feel it myself. I have empathy. I have compassion. But it is a very focused situation. To me, that's the only way I can explain how I can not listen to that voicemail or get a really bad situation that happens and listen to a three-hour deposition of a terrible case involving really sad issues, both in terms of why something happened And the results of that to our clients walk away and live my life. That is the definition of putting it in a box. And that is the only way that I think I've been able to just get up every day and somehow still enjoy this and somehow still have the enthusiasm to do it. So, Amy, what I'm hearing you say is that you have learned the skills and specifically purposefully hone them to make yourself available to have that compassion and to be the listener that you are seeking to be and to empathize with someone when your job requires that. When I'm on, when I'm in the spotlight, when it's me and the client or me and my colleague or me and whoever needs me in that moment, I am there for it. But that's very different than defining yourself as a person who is open to that interaction for anyone or everyone at any time. Yes. And I am not that person. Right. And (laughs) I'm on the same track with you 
because so many things get better as you get older. But as I get older, I have this defense mechanism, which is my organizational way of literally in my mind compartmentalizing things that I say, can't care about that, can't put my time into that. Because if you are putting yourself and making yourself available too often for the things that you have decided aren't necessary at that time, that's where I think you bleed into that compassion fatigue and you aren't available, like you're saying, Amy, when you need to be or when you need to be on or when you have to be that listener that you want to be because that skill is part of what we do because of building rapport with our clients and I think it's about access. You need to build a rapport and that person needs to trust you before they will let you into what they've experienced so you can advocate for them. You have to know your own capacity for it. Right, right. And the birth injury case that you and I tried this summer, that was an interesting mental exercise for me because it was, you know, it was just an intense case. It was an intense thing to go through a two-week trial representing a family and a little kid, especially with kids that were the same age as mine. And I remember during that trial kind of having a mantra to myself, and it seems a little funny, but I kept reminding myself and saying to myself explicitly, this is not my life. This is not my family. And by doing that, I wasn't trying to callous myself or feel less empathy for my client. It was making sure that my mind could stay clear and focused while representing them and not going too far down the path of that empathy and sympathizing with them and what they're going through and also keeping the pressure that I was putting on myself in check. Not that I didn't have quite a bit of pressure on myself, but I needed to remember that a trial is very important and what we do in this sense is very important. But, you know, sometimes it frustrates me. We are the cleanup crew. The law only allows us to get compensation. And at the end of the day, compensation will change your life. It will change your course and you deserve it and it can give a sense of justice. But the life and death moment has usually already happened. And you could analyze that a bit more when we're talking about like providing medical care and things like that. But I think you have to stay above board on that so you can make sure that you're protecting yourself and your mental health, which you were talking about, Liz. I mean, I'm a pretty emotional person, but there has to be some sort of defense mechanism that you are diligent about creating in order to make sure that you can stay focused and not take on kind of the weight of the world. I've always found myself to be a very empathetic person for better or worse. I always feel like I can like soak up the emotion in the room. And I identified that probably as a kid. And like that's difficult to deal with at times, especially when, you know, there are things going on in your life. You know, you deal with stress as a kid, I guess, or I did at least. Maybe that's just unique to me. So I think I learned from an early age how to compartmentalize. And I think that that helps me 
in this career, dealing with the things that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. You have to listen in the moment and figure out how to like solve that or work those issues into the case, but you can't bring that home with you. And I think that's something that is easier said than done. And you have to find your outlet for how you deal with those things. And I think that one area that's difficult to do is to talk to family and friends about seemingly kind of like tragic things that go on in their day-to-day lives and not like comparing it to the horrible things that we deal with. And that's something that I've had a hard time with because it's like, well, you know, someone will tell you about something crappy that, you know, they think happened to them. And you sat in a depot with a mom whose kid died. And you're like, I mean, I can't listen to you complain. And I've made that mistake being like, well, I'll tell you how my day went. Like, at least we aren't this person. Yeah, let me one up you on your sad story. And like, no one wants to be that person. So you have to bite your tongue. But it does offer, like in our own personal lives, a good dose of perspective. Like, no matter what issues you're having, your worst day isn't as bad as like the things that we deal with and the cases that we work on. So I think that's one like plus side to all of the trauma that we're surrounded by. But it can be really hard to learn how to talk to people about these issues that they've had in their lives. I handle a lot of opioid cases. So, uh, you know, our clients are addicts. That's nature of the case. And part of that is listening to how this disrupted their relationships with their family members, talking to their family members. You know, 27-year-old me didn't really know how to have those conversations with people and how to not bring that home or think about it after hours. And you kind of just have to learn to like stop at some point. You can't let it affect you or you can't like have a normal personal life. But it's a hard lesson to learn. But the sooner you learn it, setting those boundaries, I think like the happier you'll be in this career because I mean, it's tough day in and day out to deal with those kinds of things. That's something that I know I need to work on about myself. And I know that I am what I would refer to as a big feeler whatever someone else is feeling, I can feel myself absorbing that too. If someone is incredibly happy, I feel myself getting happier. If someone is incredibly sad, which is 90% of this job, I feel, (laughs) I feel that as well. And I think that in one aspect, it makes me a good personality for this job because I'm going to take on whatever happened to my client and it's going to fuel me which is what we need in this job is fuel because it is go, go, go all the time. It is a fight. You're constantly fighting. And I use whatever bad thing happened to my client to energize me when I have to do my job. But I also recognize that if I don't try to do a better job of giving myself that space away from work, and allowing myself to not be consumed by my work, then eventually it is going to chip away at me. And it's something I've gotten better as I've gotten older, even though I just told the story about how I screwed up last week. <laughs> but It's not screwed up. You didn't screw up. It's you, a practice. You, you did a very nice thing for that woman. But, you know, Elizabeth, you mentioned, you know, you're 27 talking to these people who have gone through the unimaginable and you're sitting there as someone who's just freshly out of law school. And how do you make it clear to them that you're hearing them and that you're really, really taking in everything that they're saying? And I think that with age, that becomes a little bit easier. With experience, that becomes easier. Although, you know, going around this table, talking about compassion fatigue and compartmentalizing and all of that, I do wonder how does being a woman play into this? 
as far as do clients expect more empathy out of us? Yes. Would we? Exactly. Are we going to be perceived as bad attorneys, even though our skills are on par, if not better, than our male colleagues if we're not more empathetic because that is what is expected of women? So that's something else that has sort of creeped into my brain as we've been talking is just what is the expectation level compared to our male colleagues? I think that's kind of a benefit, right? Something that may seem like a weakness or a burden, you can kind of use as a strength. And maybe the way that someone who is a feeler or someone who is a good listener or good empathizer can access their clients better, can build that rapport better. I mean, by and large, the trust I see from our clients and the relationship we have with our clients makes our cases go better. You know, when we're at resolution time, we need to gear up and get you ramped up for trial. When we tell them how it's going to go and what's going to happen, if they trust you, heck, you are halfway through the race, right? And what I have been thinking about during our discussion, I just learned this in relation to my kids, but I think it kind of translates to what we do. So... (laughs) toddlers are crazy. (laughs) And we, my wife and I seek out a lot of advice on how to weather the toddler years. One of the, you know, social media accounts or something we follow the other day posted something about how, you know, your toddler is going to ride these emotional waves up and down all the time. And you can let them do that. You don't need to control it or stop it or whatever, but you don't have to ride with them. You get to be the anchor and the steady voice in that experience. And that visualization is so translatable to everything. You know, if you can be the steady, unwavering voice, you're going to gain the trust and the rapport of your client. You're going to keep yourself and your mental health and your compartmentalizing in check. And you also will be able to keep your focus. So if you remove yourself from the idea that you have to ride that wave with your client, if it's a good day, if it's a bad day, if something because of their case brings another burden upon their family or another financial issue, you know, because the breadwinner in their family is now permanently disabled or something like that. If you get off that wave and you are the steady anchor, then you're the one who can focus on the job that you have to do. I appreciate all the eye contact everyone's giving me. One last topic that I wanted to bring up, I think it's important to address in this conversation, is maybe some of the unhealthy coping mechanisms that people in various professions use, but I know lawyers seem to have a particular problem with, and that is substance abuse or other forms of unhealthy coping mechanisms. And I think it's important for us to, one, normalize talking about that and normalize seeking help and encouraging people to get help and note that it's a struggle and it can be a disease sometimes, but it is not a moral failing. It is not a sign that you're a bad attorney or bad at your job or anything like that. It's something that people struggle with and we need to support our colleagues in that sense. And so if you are going through anything like that, I know bar associations across the country all have resources available for attorneys to seek out help in those situations. And furthermore, if you need to get mental health counseling, again, that is a sign of strength, recognizing that you may have a problem that you need to fix and working on yourself. Or even if you don't think you have a problem and you just think it could make you a better you, mental health therapy and counseling is 
is such a wonderful resource. And I wish that it was more normalized and people felt more comfortable talking about it. And I think we're heading in that direction, certainly. It's better than what it was, but there's always work to be done. And I think that us using this platform that we have, ladies, to talk about it is another step in the right direction. Thanks for that, Liz. I think that as we've been talking about our own practice and developing the skills of coping mechanisms, avoiding compassion fatigue, and working on compartmentalizing where we need to, that's something that always needs to be remembered. It's a practice, right? We're never going to get it right all the time. There's going to be periods of time where compartmentalizing, depending on what your cases look like or what you're involved in, is going to be much harder, or compassion fatigue is going to rush in much stronger, depending on what you have going on in your personal life versus professional life life as well. So it may be the season that you need help and a different season. You may be the one helping others learn how to make this distinction in our professional lives. So thank you everyone for joining us. Our new episodes drop on Wednesdays. You can reach us at heelsinthecourtroom.law with any comments or questions. Thanks. Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you. Send your thoughts to comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law and subscribe today 